Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. To Ephesians chapter 4. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor, one of our preaching pastors and elders. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, we'll be in Ephesians 4 in just a second, but like Aaron said, we are um, almost actually done with our series studying the convictions of our church. The reason we're doing this series is we want to look at the, the Bible together and say, what are those values? What are those beliefs that we as a people have to hold to if we're going to be faithful to God? And so this week we're looking at our devotion to equipping the saints and us being gospel saturated in our discipleship, much like last week with the Holy Spirit in prayer. We're going to talk about these convictions in relation to one another. But here's the larger theme. The larger theme that ties equipping and discipleship together is the theme in the Bible that God wants to grow his people, that God wants to mature his people. He doesn't want to leave you stagnant and where you are. He wants to see you grow up into Christ. And he wants to do that. He wants to grow his people by the means of his people. That every single one of us is called as a Christian into that process of building up his church together. Because human beings were made to be builders and creators. You as an image bearer of God, you were made to build and create. When God made Adam and Eve, he gave them a task, he gave them a mission. Yes, they were made to know God, but part of their knowing God was building something with him. And so originally they received the Garden of Eden, the whole world in all of its goodness, but it was in its raw form. And they were told to subdue it, to fill it, to take dominion over it, to look at a wild garden and shape it and mold it and bring design and order to it in a way that causes human beings to flourish in it. That's part of what it means to be human. Because God created and built from nothing and he calls his image bearers to build and create from the raw materials given to us. That's why from the moment God made humanity, we've been working and shaping and molding and creating and building. From simple tools, to languages, to communities, to civilization, to technology, to art, to families. Human beings can't help but build and create. And you don't build and create simply for survival. Don't have a Darwinian ethic that says, oh, human beings do all these things to merely survive. We don't just build tools to get more food, though we do that. We also build things like poetry and pottery and music. Things that aren't essential, but they're part of what humans can't help but do. Like, you you don't just build families and communities and civilizations simply to garner more resources. Why do you do it? Because you want closeness and friendship and love and belonging. Your creating and your forming and your building is so much deeper than survival because you're an image bearer. And image bearers create because we're reflecting the one who created all things. But like everything else in life, everything else has been broken and tainted by our sin, even our creating, even our building. See, you and I can't flourish if we don't have a relationship with the one we're made to reflect. And so now, here's what happens. Our building and creating is so often marked by futility and dissatisfaction. So we build businesses and careers and families and ministries and nonprofits and all sorts of things we build, and then yet, over time, we see time and erosion take place and things begin to crumble, things we gave our life to, we see it begin to erode right before us. Or other times we actually build something and it's everything we wanted it to be. Our career, our family, whatever it is that we created, it's everything you wanted and yet you find yourself 
thinking in your heart of hearts, in your quiet moments, is this it? One of the most terrifying things is getting the thing you were always after and realizing it doesn't satisfy you. Because then what do you do? See, in a world broken by sin, what happens is we're either crushed by futility or we're dissatisfied by success. See, in this world, now corrupt by sin, building and creating is difficult work. But God still calls you to it. You, once again, you're a human. You can't help but do it. But there's one project in particular God has called all of his people to build together. And it's not a physical structure. It's not a brand. It's not technology. It's his people. Every single one of you, if you're in Christ, God is saying, here's our joint project together to build up the church together. Not just for pastors, not just for leaders, but for every single person who calls on Christ. God wants his people to grow. God wants it to happen through you saturating his people with the gospel, and God wants you to be equipped for the work of ministry. So let's read together Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 to see all of this for ourselves. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the first thing I want you to see from this text, I want you to see that, that God wants his people to grow, to be built up, and to mature. Look at verse 13 and 14 again. It says, until we all attain, all of us attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, here's this phrase, to mature manhood. Next phrase, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Then verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. Here's what Paul is making abundantly clear. God is not content with weak and immature faith. He's not content with it. Paul's using this imagery, this illustration of children becoming adults to show us God wants you to grow. He wants you to mature. He's saying that after you believe in the gospel at the very beginning of your salvation, that there's nothing noble, nothing godly about remaining all the time unsteady and always being on the fence about whether or not this clear teaching of the Bible is true or not. Listen, Paul is an apostle, he's an evangelist, he loves those outside the faith. He's con in his ministry, is consistently persuading those outside the faith, outside the church to come believe with us, trust Jesus with us. He loves those coming, who, coming to the faith who are brand new. But one of his chief aims in life as an apostle was to see those who accepted Christ to mature in Christ. Look, look at Colossians 1.28, he says this. It says, him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present 
everyone, everyone mature in Christ. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's saying, I'm working as hard as I am to see you grow up, to see you mature. He's saying, for this I toil, struggling with all the power he works within me, because he knows every single one of you and myself, our tendency is to drift towards being like spiritual children. Now listen, there is nothing wrong about being new to the faith, nothing wrong about not knowing much about what it means to follow Jesus. Hopefully that's happening a lot in our church. The hope is that there'll be tons of people who don't know Jesus, who hang around with us and get to know us and are in our homes and they get to see our lives. We talk to them about Jesus and they join us in belief in him. And when that happens, there's gonna be a lot of, I've never heard that before, I've never read that before, I don't know much about what it means to follow Jesus. We should want that to happen in our church. But what we shouldn't want to happen is that we believe and we just stay in immaturity and we don't grow out of certain ways of thinking and living. And I get this imagery that he's using from children to adults. I get it right now very acutely because I have three young kids. I have three young kids and there are certain things that they do right now that are cute and understandable. But if they keep doing them into adulthood, it's gonna be really sad, mostly for me, right? So here's a, here's a great example. Uh, my son, our middle child, Henry, he's three now. And about 18 months ago, uh, Lauren was out doing something. It was just me and Henry at the house. And so I was watching him very closely, which means watching football. And I was locked in on the game and I hadn't heard Henry for like 20 minutes. Like, I'm sure he's fine. He's 18 months old. He can walk around, take care of himself. And so he's, I, I hadn't heard him in a while. Lauren, I'm sorry if you're in the room. I, um, I hadn't heard him in a while. And so I'm watching TV and I look to my right. He had taken off all of his clothes. He had ripped off his diaper and he was bent over with his head between his legs looking at me laughing hysterically. So when I look over, what did I do? I laughed hysterically, because that's awesome. I get it, buddy, great. Who doesn't want to do that from time to time, right? But here's the thing, he's 18 months old and we all laugh. Imagine I'm saying, I tell you the same story and he's 18 years old. I look to my right and I go, oh buddy, we gotta go talk to some people now. Like, like this, I failed you somewhere, clearly, right? What, now listen, it's the exact same action. Why is it in one cute and the other one disgusting, right? Because there are certain things you should grow out of. There are certain things as a child is understandable, but as you mature, we expect you to grow out of those things. And the exact same thing is true for us in the faith. Listen, it's understandable. If you're new to the faith and you don't know much, you have a lot of questions, that's fine. But eventually we should move into maturity. Now, I'm not saying maturity means you're perfect or that you don't struggle anymore. It's actually quite the opposite. What, I am, what I'm learning and what I see of those who are before who are more mature than me in Christ, is the more mature you get, the more you realize how flawed and sinful you really are. The more mature you get, you don't think, oh, I have no sin, the more, the more you realize I have a lot of sin. And the more you fight against it, and the more you cherish God's grace. So maturity is not perfection. Maturity is saying, I'm taking responsibility for my own spiritual life. I'm owning my own growth and development and obedience in Christ, that we should grow in our convictions. And of all the different things we should grow in, Paul, in this text, he points out one in particular. He says, to grow up 
to be built up in the way God wants you to grow is for you to grow in your discernment and understanding true and false teaching about God. Look at verse 14. He says, so that we may no longer be children. So no longer be children, he gives it uh, imagery. He says, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by wind, but wind and waves of what? Of doctrine, of false teaching. He says, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So here's the thing about children. They will believe just about anything you tell them. They still think I can pull things out of their ears and I'm not gonna tell them otherwise, right? I want them to think I have magical powers for as long as that'll last. They'll believe anything. They don't have much discernment and knowledge on their own to be able to distinguish for themselves what's true and what's not. And that makes them very susceptible to error. And spiritually, all of us in this room can remain like children who are unable to discern truth from error. So let me give you an example. What'll happen is you'll hear somebody, and in our context, in our day and age, there are so many eloquent, incredible speakers all over the place. And you hear someone give a powerful, passionate, eloquent delivery of some message about what God's love is like, and they say, here's what God's love is like, and because his love is like this, he would always do this and never do that, he would always accept this and always deny that. And you hear it and you go, man, that is really good and really inspiring. And you go to something different. Maybe you're online and you watch some video. And then you see another message, but it's a story. And it's this incredible story. You laugh and you cry and you repent and you're all over the place and you're, and you're inspired and you walk away thinking, I've gotta change my life. And this person says, this is the love of God and the love of God means the exact opposite of what the other person said. And we have to be able to go, well then who's right? Like how do you know? Well both of them were incredible communicators. Both of them stirred my heart in a really cool way, but they had contradicting messages. And maturity means you know the word of God well enough to be able to parse out what are half-truths. It means you know the word of God well enough where you can say, oh, I see the kernel of truth they have there, but they're smothering in a lot of lies. You get to be able to parse out and go, okay, they're well-intentioned, but they're misguided on this point. And then you can point out those people who are outright deceptive and deceivers and liars about what is true. But if you're not mature, then we'll operate like spiritual children who don't use God's word to discern truth and error. No, what spiritual children tend to do is we use our own tuition. We use our own intuition and we think, well, if it seems true to me, then it must be true. Or we use, how does the teaching make me feel? If it made me feel encouraged and it made me feel warm and it made me feel inspired, then it must be true. Or we look to our family of origin or to our culture's response and we think, well, this person I love and respect thinks it. Someone I idolize in society thinks it, so there must be some validity to it. But church, you have to know there are so many false teachings in our day and age that you have to be able to spot and reject if you're gonna stay faithful to God. 
that you won't be tossed to and fro by every doctrine that you hear, because there are self-help doctrines everywhere that downplay our sin and our need for grace. There are cheap grace doctrines that downplay obedience and the authority of God's commands. There are prosperity gospel doctrines that downplay the role of suffering and its purifying pattern and behavior in our life. See, just because somebody references Jesus, has a Bible verse, and tells a compelling story, doesn't mean that they're necessarily right about what they're saying. It doesn't mean they're faithful to the text. It doesn't mean they're actual teachers of sound doctrine. And when you're young in your faith, when you're new to the faith, you're gonna have a harder time spotting those things. You have a more difficult time seeing them for what they are, but eventually, eventually you should mature to the point where you can recognize it. And especially, hear me really clearly on this. Even if the person saying it is someone you love and respect, you're still able to diagnose and dismiss their false teaching. You can love someone and then be wrong. And you can think they're wrong and still love them. It's possible. But eventually there are certain teachings in our culture that you should be able to dismiss as quickly as you dismiss my claim that I can pull objects out of my kids' ears. You should move past to where you're not tossed to and fro by every teaching that is thrown your way. God wants his people to grow, to no longer be children. So here's the question then. Okay, he wants his people to grow. How do we grow? Well, it's our conviction. That's why we're gospel-saturated in discipleship that we wanna challenge one another, love one another, take the gospel to each other, or the way Paul says it in this text, is speak the truth in love to one another. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So don't be children, so now what do you do to not be children? Verse 15, rather, instead of being children, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. It's the truth of God's word spoken in love that causes us to grow. And it's really important for you to understand, even if you're young in here, a lot of you are, that maturity does not happen simply by the passing of time. Maturity does not happen simply by the passing of time. While there are clearly benefits and learning that can come from time, Paul does not root spiritual maturity in just how long you've been a Christian. I know plenty of people who have been in the church for a long time and confessing believers for a long time who are still spiritually immature. Maturity does not start with how long you've been a Christian. It starts with are you hearing and are you speaking the truth in love? That's how you grow up. That's how you change. And you have to know that both truth and love have to characterize this type of speech that grows us. Both truth and love have to characterize the speech that God uses to grow us. And here's what I've noticed in our church. We tend to do one or the other, but not both at the same time. We tend to either speak the truth without love or to love without truth. Like there are some of us in this room who we really, really value speaking the truth to people. Like you really value being direct. You really wanna honor God's word. 
but then we tend to be cold. We tend to be quick to frustration and slow to show compassion, slow to, quick to speak and slow to listen. Like you, you can point out when people are disobeying God. You can even point out in your own life, you know when you're disobeying God, but you really struggle to have people be honest with you because they don't feel loved by you. You struggle to draw them out to be honest, to hear their story, to understand where they're coming from. You'll struggle to have relationships of depth and warmth and closeness. But here's what we say. To justify our pattern of behavior of truth without love, we'll say, well, I just tell it like it is. I'm just keeping it real. I'm just honoring God's word. That's some of us in this room. Others of us, we lean the other way. We value love and meeting people where they are. Like we value meeting them where they are, empathizing with them, loving them, but then we tend to be cowardly about truth. We tend to, more than we realize it, justify sin. And honestly, we tend to struggle to help people actually change. To actually change. See, we're good at meeting where they are and helping them feel loved, but then we really struggle to help them actually love God more than they love themselves. But here's what we'll do. We'll justify that pattern of behavior and rhythm by saying, hey, I'm just loving the way that Jesus did. I'm just meeting people where they are because that's what Jesus did. Well, you have to know, if you separate truth and love from one another, you compromise both. If you separate truth from love and love from truth, you compromise both. So if you speak truth without love in it, you really don't understand truth then. And if you love without speaking truth, then you don't understand love. Jesus coming to us in the flesh shows us if you wanna understand God, then you can never separate truth and love. John 1.14 tells us this. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father. What is he full of? Full of grace and truth. He's full of both. What's incredible about Jesus, his grace doesn't dilute his truth, or vice versa. He's full of both. His truth is wrapped in love, and his love is soaked in truth. That's why when you read the Gospels, Jesus will have words of welcome and words of warning. Have words of compassion and words of command. Have words of sweetness and words of severity. He's truth and love incarnate. He's God in the flesh. And it's his ministry that's a model for us because we're called not to just grow generally. Your goal isn't just simply to be more virtuous as a person, it's to become more like Jesus. Look at verse 15 again. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to what? Grow up in every way into him. Not just grow generally, but into him who is the head into Christ. So here's the thing, if we're gonna become like him, we have to speak and live like him and talk about him. In short, we need to speak the gospel to each other. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's ultimate display that he refuses to separate truth and love. The cross of Christ is his ultimate display. He's like, I will not separate truth and love. You may think I have to separate them, but the cross shows you that I don't have to. The cross of Jesus Christ is God telling the truth about our sin. God will not lie about our sin. The cross is saying, 
No, your sin's not a small deal. You're, you're, you're not just sort of messed up. You don't just need to do some good deeds for me. Someone has to die. That's how bad your sin is. He tells the truth. But then he shows off his love by saying, but I love you so much, I will bear the punishment. I'll show you the extent to which my love will go for you. The cross of Jesus is where we see the truth and love of God shining most clearly. And what you and I need is it's believing in that gospel that saves you, but also it's re-believing and retrusting that gospel that matures you. Listen, you've got to know this. So often we talk about the gospel of Jesus as something you believe to get into the kingdom, and then you grow as a Christian by being more disciplined. No, the gospel is how you get into the kingdom of God, and it's how you grow in the kingdom of God. You need to go back to the gospel again and again and again of going, oh, wait, that's who I am. That's who I am. That's what Christ has done for me. And a fresh faith and fresh repentance and fresh belief of, oh, that's why I do what I do. Do you need to be more disciplined? Yes. But how do you get the power to be more disciplined? You go back and you remember God's love for you. You remember what it cost. And you don't just go there in your, in their, in your mind. You need to hear people speak that to you. It is unbelievable to me how often you can be around Christians and how little we can talk about Jesus. We'll talk about church and how that's going and our lives and how that's going, but Jesus doesn't come up all that often. We just kind of assume him. Yeah, we all believe that, but we don't understand that the root of all your sin is your lack of trust in him. The root of your sin is your lack of belief in his work and his promises to you and for you. And we need to be people who speak the gospel to one another in every area of life. That when we succeed and God uses us, we go and remember, why are you able to do that? Remember what it costs Jesus to give you that sort of power. And when you fail and you feel miserable, you go back to, remember, you're not defined by your works, you're defined by his. We go back to it again and again and again. And this is a church-wide project. This is not a Sunday project. It's a church-wide project. He says we are speaking, ongoing, speaking the truth and love to one another. There are people in this church that do need to hear a sermon, but they need to hear from you the gospel. They need you, they need you to rehearse it for them. Hey, remember who Jesus is for you. Yes, you need to hear teaching from our leaders, but you also need to be over coffee and have someone tell you, hey, remember what the gospel calls us to. It's that sort of speaking as a people that begins to change and shape us, begins to saturate our church. And what you're gonna see is actually if you don't play your role in that, our whole church will falter. It is incredible how tightly God ties you and me together. Like the person next to you who you don't know doesn't play their part, we're gonna see all of us will stall out in our love. We're all affected by it. But how do you do that? It's the question, okay, I need to be, I need to speak the gospel, but how do I learn how to do that? How do you do that in every area of life? God has given you leaders to train you how to do that. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, a group of leaders, different types of leaders, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So in the context of this, 
what Paul is articulating, he's saying here are all the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given the church. So in verse seven, right before this, he says, every believer has grace, has gifts given to them. I don't know if you know that, but if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit has given you gifts to exercise in the church. And then he says, on top of the gifts every individual gets, the church as a people, as a body, I've given them spiritually gifted leaders. It says, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, and why did he give them to you? Why did he give leaders to you? To equip you for the work of ministry. Ministry is not done by leaders, it's done by saints. It's done by the people of God. The leader's job is to make sure you are trained, you are empowered, and you are sent to go do incredible things, to speak truth and love, to build up the body of Christ, to advance his name. And let me just tell you frankly, pastors and their people have gotten this dynamic wrong so often. They've gotten this dynamic wrong so often. And while both parties share faults in this, I think it mostly, the blame lies mostly with pastors. Because listen, we live in a culture, and you have to know this, every culture is different, good things, bad things. We live in a culture that's defined by consumerism and individualism. We are defined by it. Our, our culture is training you how to be a consumer and how to be an individual. And in this climate, Pastors training saints to do ministry is not the natural outcome. It's not what we would naturally bend towards. See, you're being trained to be a consumer, and a consumer is this. It's someone who wants a superior experience and product with the least amount of work possible. That's a consumer. Superior experience and product with the least amount of work possible. So in a consumer culture, Pastors aren't here to equip you. Pastors are here to give you a superior religious experience and product that keeps you coming back and keeps you giving. That's consumerism. I'm here to get the things that I want, and if you fail to give me the things that I want or desire or need, then I'll go to the next religious person and they'll give me the thing that I want or need. It's, an, it's not equipping. It's normally performing. You're being trained you're being trained in a culture of individualism. You're being taught that you're most happy when you're most free from the responsibility and expectations of other people. That you're most happy, that you'll be most happy if no one can infringe upon your life and your freedoms and your schedule. So in that sort of climate and culture, the natural response is not to say, oh, pastors are here to give me ministry to do and people to love. No, it's pastors are here to do that for me. My job is to pray for them, pay them, let them do that, and I'm unburdened by the problems of other people. And I get to feel spiritual while doing it. Now, I want you to know really, something really clearly. Pastors have played into this big time out of fear of you. Pastors have played into this because they're fearful. We're fearful of losing you, fearful of losing respect and influence, fear of losing your giving, fear of losing you, because we're afraid if I call you to do something, you don't wanna be bothered, you wanna be entertained. Pastors play into it. So many churches play into that. And I want you to know, I can't speak for every church, but I can't speak for this one. And the pastors and elders and leaders of this church, 
that we are going to be devoted to equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We're gonna work hard. You better get ready to do something after this, okay? You're clapping. <laughs> Hope you're ready to lead. Um, thank you, though. <laughs> um, we're devoted to that. We wanna make sure you have everything you need to go and fulfill the ministry God's called you to do. We don't wanna steal away opportunities from you. And we don't want you to settle for us doing it for you. Now, over the years, this value of ours, to be frank, has frustrated many people who have come to be a part of this church. And here's, here's kind of the scenario. Let me tell you why it frustrates people. So here's what happens. An individual or a group of people in our church will come talk to me or another leader, a pastor, an elder, Aaron, whoever, and they'll come with they have an idea or a dream or a passion or a vision for our church or for our city or for our world. And they'll come to us and they'll say, hey, here's where our church is weak and needs to grow. Here's the things that we need to stop doing and start doing. Here's people who are not served. And to be honest, most of those meetings that I've had, most of the time, people are right. Most of the time, the idea that you have, I'm like, that's a, that's a really good idea. We are weak in that area. We do need to grow in that. Those people are underserved. That, that area of mission in our city, no one's really doing that. You're right, we need to step in and play our role. But then the disconnect begins to happen when I will say, or the leader will say, that's a great idea, you should really do that. You just had a great idea for you right there. How, how can I, I believe in that, how can I help you do that? What resource do you need, what training do you need? Here's some things to think about as you're doing that. Do you need some people to help you? I can talk to maybe some people. And what has happened so often, because people don't understand this conviction of ours, they hear that, and honestly, and I get it, they hear that and they think, that means you don't care about what I'm doing. If you cared about what I was doing, you would show up and you would attend it. You would be at it. If you cared about what I was doing, you'd make it front page news for everybody to know that it's happening. If you, and the assumption is, if you cared about it, you would basically do it. And to be honest, that's not at all what's happening. It's just that I actually believe that God has, will use you to do these things. The truth is we believe in you more often than you believe in you. And I don't believe in you generally just because I know you're a great person. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you if you're a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. Same spirit I have. So my job is to help you know how to do that, but we don't want you to settle for having good ideas of things we could do. I don't want you to settle for me and the other leaders of this church having great stories and you having none. Church, you have no idea how bad I want us to be in the new heavens and new earth and gathered around the table with Jesus and everyone's raising their glasses, grape juice for sure, raising their glasses. And I wanted to get to you around this massive table of all the people of God, of all time, of all tribes, of all tongues, and all nations. I don't want your story to be, man, God really used Aaron Ivy. It was so cool, I got to just watch God use him, you know? I love Aaron, God's using Aaron, right? But I want you to say, here's how God used me. Yeah, it may not have been as big as other people's. Listen, when you look at history, all of our stories pale in comparison to somebody's. 
Like you read, for us as church leaders, we read about guys like Spurgeon, we're like, well, I'm terrible compared to him, so he's better than us, got it. There's always gonna be somebody with you that has a different story, but I want you to be able to say, here's how God used me in my generation. Here's how I took a risk and God used me. And what's incredible about stories is, I've said this to you before, the best stories are when someone takes a risk for the sake of loving somebody else. The best stories are defined by their conflict. Right, the best stories are when there's an epic conflict and you don't really know what will happen in this. And the truth is, most of our stories aren't compelling because we settle for comfort and other people doing it. There is no great story of he was born, did what came easy, bought a Volvo, and then he died, right? <laughs> if you like Volvos, that's fine, honestly. It doesn't matter. Not dissing Volvos. But you, why isn't that compelling? Why are you not like, I gotta buy that book. I gotta, I, gotta hear, I gotta hear that. Because the great stories are people saying, I, I didn't know how it would go. I went to that person's house and I didn't know what would happen. And the conversation was really awkward at the beginning and now that, but we talked through, that person came to Christ or God used me in this way or that person's marriage is falling apart. I got to minister to them and see it reconciled. It happens when the people of God actually will do the work of, and the, get into the mess of ministry with one another. Those are the stories that are compelling. Why? Because you're risking for the sake of loving somebody else. You were made for that. That's why you love stories. Because you're made to be a part of it. Not just watch it, you're made to go into it yourself. And that's what we want as a church. We want to train you up so you're able to saturate this church in the gospel and help one another grow in Christ. All of you have different roles to play, and different ways to serve, and different gifts to exercise, and different people to speak the truth and love too. And here's what we're going to close with this. Here's what Paul's going to say. When we all do that, from the back of the bleachers to the front row, when we all do that, we all grow. We all grow. Look at verse 15 and 16. It says, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, verse 16. He's Christ the head from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Once you're equipped by your leaders, when each part is working properly. Working properly, what happens to the body? It makes the body, the church, grow. Grow what? Just in Numerically, in numbers, there's something in particular. Grow so that it builds itself up in love. It says when each part is working properly, that means if there's any part not working properly, this verse doesn't apply. The next sentence doesn't apply. The next phrase doesn't apply. It says it's conditioned. It's based on when each part is working properly. When each one of you is playing your role in this church and we're all depending on each other and serving together, God begins to grow us. When you are equipped to fulfill your ministry in this church and in this city, all of a sudden we all begin to grow in love. Somehow, I don't know how it all works and how the Holy Spirit does this, but the Holy Spirit wants to work in us as we're all doing it and then we'll become mature in our character and steady in our faith and discerning in our thinking, and loving in our acting, and bold in our speaking. 
And he says, we'll be built up in love. He's saying, you can know a people is doing this when the primary trait and characteristic of that people is love. Is love. We could have incredible Sunday services, incredible preaching, incredible worship, and the city could think we are excellent at those things, but if we are not defined by love, we're not that great in the kingdom of God. I don't know if you noticed, but our city isn't super impressed with our Sunday gatherings. I know that because people will pay to go to UT games, right? And they're destroying us in the number department. It's gonna take a people rooted and grounded in love. People that are marked so much by, we love God together and we love each other and then the city can look at us and go, oh, so the gospel actually produces something. See, I thought the gospel was some just one, two, three belief kind of pattern. It's like a th- that's theoretical and kind of mystical, but looking at you people, I see tangible, real expressions of what it accomplished. Oh, when he got out of the tomb, he was doing something. And Jesus always says, you can see my work and my power most acutely in the love my people have for each other. That will be built up in love. So listen, we live in Austin, Texas, and we are a city full of people who love to build and create and learn and grow. I love that so many of you are thinking thoughtfully, how do I love Jesus and be faithful to him in the tech industry or in the arts or in politics or education or startups or social activism or parenting or families or dating or whatever else. I love that we get to be in a city that people have a genuine desire to grow and to reach and to build something bigger than themselves. I love being a part, and we wanna help you. Whatever that is in your life, whatever, whatever that industry or passion or relationship that you wanna build, we wanna help you do that. We wanna equip you so that you can do that faithfully. But listen, of all the things that you are a part of building, don't miss out on building up God's people. Don't miss out on building up God's people, because listen, you don't have to be in vocational ministry to make an impact, because he says, when each part is working properly. So invest in relationships here. Listen, we're a big church, you're not gonna know everybody, but invest in some relationships here. If you're just attending, it's great, but you're missing out on what it means to be the church. Invest here. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a pastor to be trained in the scriptures. Take classes here. Learn about the Bible. Learn that our faith explains all that you see in the world better than any other worldview. Learn that in the text. It's there for you to learn. You don't have to be on staff to lead. Lead communities here. Lead teams here. Lead classes here. Start new nonprofits in this city. Do incredible things. But don't settle. Don't settle. Because Jesus is calling you to invest your life into something that literally can't be stopped. Jesus said to Peter, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, your confession, he says, I will build my church. Jesus says, I will build my church. Not I may build, I hope to build. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not 
prevail against it. You get to be a part of Jesus building up his church. Listen, you're going to have a ton of people, charismatic leaders who come to you and say, hey, come build this thing with me. Startups, politics, come build this thing with me. And we want to be salt and light in those places. But remember, of all the people who called you to come build something with them, Jesus is the only one who's given his life for you. People want to use you and abuse you to build their own kingdom and their own name. I'm telling you, Jesus already proved, I'm here to cause you to flourish in building this thing with me. You can know that I'm for you because I've already lost everything so I can build up this people. You were made to build and create. You can't help but do it. So make sure you build and create something that will last forever. Because when you invest in the people of God, and some of you are investing, and you're serving, and you're growing weary, trust me, not one ounce of love you give to the people of God and service will be spent in vain. Because the new heavens and new earth, when you see the people of God resurrected and glorified, you're going to realize Jesus used your small little life to be a part of getting all of them home and building all them up. Hell may topple and prevail against every enterprise and every venture you pursue. Death and decay may erode everything you build over time, but nothing, and I mean nothing, not even the gates of hell, will stop the church. So give your life to her. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, thank you that you have bigger dreams and purpose and meaning for us than we know what to do with. God, I'm so thankful that your salvation that you started in so many of us, it doesn't stop there. You're not done with us. You want to see us grow and mature and build and create and see people flourish under your reign and rule. God, would you help us be a church, a group of people that own the work of ministry together? That what would characterize this church is not a few people lead and a few people own what's going on there, but it'd be a church known for everyone's all in. Everyone's speaking the truth and love to each other. Everyone's repenting together. Everyone's growing together. And these are a people marked by love. God, I want this city to be able to understand what your gospel produces. So God, even now, would you call out in us those areas where we've settled? Those areas where we have settled to not be used by you, to not take any risk, to not love anyone outside of our immediate circles. God, would you call us out of that? Would you give us new dreams to dream and new visions to pursue and new risks to take? For those who are weary in here, God, would you bolster them and strengthen them, remind them, don't grow weary in doing good, for in due time you will reap a harvest of righteousness. God, help us not give up on each other. Help us not to give up, because Jesus, you didn't give up on us. Jesus, you lost everything, so we would always have in front of us the model of the love we should have for each other. God, help this church be saturated in the gospel so this city will be saturated in the gospel. 
God, use us to advance your kingdom. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.